David. Thank you, Lois. We, uh, yes, last week we had our annual prophetic update. We, we spent some time thinking about God's, what God has revealed in the scriptures about the, the end times. And then we spent some time looking at our times and comparing them to the end times. Do we see hints that we're getting closer? But today we come back to the Gospel of John where we have been for a while. Uh, I can't remember now exactly, but I think it's about a little, it's a, somewhere or close to 75 sermons so far in the Gospel of John. I'm shooting for 300. Uh, we'll be here for a little bit longer anyway. In our recent time in John, we have been in the, we, we've spent our, our time considering verse by verse what's called the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. And, and to me, that is such a sacred portion of Scripture because uh, we are allowed to, if you will, sit in in the room as the Lord gives his parting words to his disciples, his, his, his encouragement, his guidance. He's about to die. He knows that the next day. They haven't quite grasped that. And yet with compassion, with mercy, with grace, with love, our Lord shares his heart with the disciples and, and seeks to, to give them guidance for what next. Well, that closed at the end of chapter 16. In chapter 17, it's even more sacred a portion of scriptures. And so if, if, if we think of the temple, you know, there are the outer courts. And then you could, the priest was allowed to go into the holy place. And that's where they would tend to the, the menorah and make sure that it had oil and the wicks were burning and they would set and you know, take care of the showbread the, and they'd put the incense on the incense altar that was in the holy place for the priests but once a year the high priest could go behind the veil into the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant rested in one sense to me the if all of scripture is the temple mount and the temple courts the upper room discourse is that holy place. Chapter 17 is the holy of holies. Here we don't listen just to our Lord sharing his heart with his disciples. In chapter 17, it's a, it's a chapter of prayer as we are allowed to listen in as the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to his Abba Father and pours out his heart. Uh, this prayer has been called the, um, the high priestly prayer of Jesus as he in many ways intercedes for us. You could also call it the real Lord's Prayer. Now in the, up, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord is, it gives instruction, you know, here's how you should pray. Remember, the disciples asked us, you know, John teaches his disciples to pray. Lord, would you teach us? And he, and he gave us a good outline of what prayer should look like. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The, the, the Lord's Prayer. And that's, the, that's a good name for it. It reminds us that prayer came from the Lord. You know, one of the things we want to notice is, you know, sometimes as we're buying a product, who made this? Where is it from? Um, when more and more is... As we go to the grocery store, we look and say, where, where did this come from? We might see sometimes, okay, we'll, we'll just get something canned. <laughs> we'll find something a little more trustworthy. Well, the Lord's Prayer 
that he gave us the Our Father came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a prayer he can't pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The Lord Jesus Christ never sinned. It's a prayer he gave us so that we could pray. And again, not just reciting the prayer, but it's a, it's a helpful outline. In chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, this is the prayer the Lord prays. And it's the longest prayer that's recorded. We're, we're told often of our Lord going, up, going away and, and praying and, and the disciples noticing <laughs> he prays like we don't pray. And we, we see it, we're told he, he uh, you know, gave thanks for the bread, he blessed the bread. The, there's a brief prayer there as he uh, is at the grave of Lazarus and in other times. But here we have a, a chapter-long prayer. And so this, this passage has been recognized throughout history as a, as a very sacred portion of Scripture. And, I, and, and once again, I feel the inadequacy to properly address it. But by God's grace, uh, we will take a tour in the next weeks uh, in the Holy of Holies. Various ones throughout history have spoken well of this passage. One that strikes me is John Knox. He's the one who brought the Reformation to Scotland. When we think of, of Scotland and, and, and see the, how the gospel has, throughout history has had such a powerful impact, we can look to John Knox. And we're, this is recorded uh, when John Knox was uh, lying on his deathbed in his house in Edinburgh. He insistently asked that the Bible be read aloud to him. He wanted to hear the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. He asked for the Psalms. And he even requested some of Calvin's sermons be read to him. See, he'd spent time in Geneva. He'd been under Calvin's teaching. And he wanted to bring what Calvin had, had revealed, and, if you will, unfolded, uncovered in the gospel. He wanted to bring that to Scotland. And so <clears throat> he probably asked for some of the sermons that meant so much to him. But above all else, he asked for his beloved chap this beloved chapter of the Gospel of John. He described it as the place where I first cast my anchor. This passage was the scripture that grounded him. I'll give you, a, if you will, a, a three-point outline. So it's three points, and so we know it's, uh, that's an accurate analysis of the chapter. <clears throat> this, is, this is the typical way people look at this. You'll often see it laid out this way. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. Now, even as I say that, I'm not entirely satisfied with that description, but you'll see the focus is really on the Lord and, and, and speaking to the Father about what Jesus. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. So in 1 to 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. And then in, in verses 20 to 26, he prays for the church. In other words, those who will come to faith through the ministry of the disciples. So we're in the Gospel of John. We'll get there, Lord willing. But today, we're going to look at verses 1 to 5, when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to his Father um, on the eve of the cross, and he prays about himself. <clears throat> Let me read our section. John 17, 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these words 
lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. <clears throat> John begins by, by giving a little background, having said these words. Uh, that's looking back to the sermon on the, 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 the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse. And so as, as, as this is the cap, this is the closure on that. The, the, the teaching time is done, and now he looks to the Father in prayer. And it said he lifted his eyes to heaven. That's an interesting detail. Um, first of all, it, it's, it, it tells us, doesn't that, that sounds like an eyewitness account. As John writes this, his, he must re, just, you know, again, see the Lord. And what must have his face looked like? What was in his eyes? But as he lifted his eyes to heaven, which is a good reminder to us, um, posture matters. Um, but notice, I don't, don't take this from this, okay, every time you pray, you have to look to heaven. You know, you can bow your head, you can, you know, close your eyes. But in other words, there's an intentionality about it. But, but you see him, he's up to now, he's been looking into the eyes of his disciples. And, and saying things like, one of you will betray me. And saying uh, so much else that was in here. Speaking to them comfort. I'm not leaving you abandoned. I'm sending a whole, another one, the Holy Spirit. But now, he's not talking to them anymore. He lifts his eyes to the Father to make it clear. I'm talking to the Father now. But he does pray out loud. And so this is one of those times where he's praying for their benefit. To hear and learn. And I'm reminded back in when he was at Laz the grave of Lazarus, and he, he said, now, Father, I know you hear me. <laughs> but this is, he's saying, I'm going to pray for the benefit of those around me. <clears throat> and so he's, here he's praying to the Father, but he wants them to hear and understand the relationship he has with the Father. And he begins with what's on his mind and heart. Father, the hour has come. It's time. Some of you have had a conversation like that even this morning. It's time. Let's get in the car. The hour has come. Or sometimes uh, I've said words something like that at a wedding. Well, it's time. Let's go out there. Or I've said something like that at a funeral. It's time. Let's go out there. Or other events in your life. Okay, it's, it's time. Uh, the surgeon is ready for you. Well, here he says the hour has come. But if you read through, you'll see the Lord has talked, spoken a number of times about this, this hour. Because really, this is why he came. 
John chapter 12, verse uh, 23 and 24, and then verse 27. In John 12, 23 and 24, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So you know, he's talking about the hour has come, and what's he describe? What's he talk about? Death as the way to fruit. In verse 27, Jesus went on and said, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And so there's this sense of this, this, there's this, this time that has been coming, this, this appointment that has been on the calendar. And now, as the Lord looks up, he raises his heart and his eyes to heaven. That's what's on his mind. Now, it's, it's, it, here it is. The time has come. Now, he, he, he may have in mind the, all that's before. The cross, maybe even the Garden of Gethsemane, but the cross, the tomb, the resurrection, the ascension. But I think overall, he's especially, his, his focus is on the cross. The cross. And as he thinks about that, now this is why I came. <clears throat> this is why I was given a human body. This is why I was born in Bethlehem. This is why I lived. The teachings, the miracles, helpful. But he came to die. And so, Father, now is the time. And so notice what he says. Glorify your son. One commentator um, says it this way. He says not pity, succor, sustain, but glorify thy son. And you know, he, he doesn't ask, uh, Lord, give me even strength here. He doesn't ask, give me, you know, ease my pain, calm my soul. What's his primary objective? Glorify your son. Thinking of the cross. The cross is his great work of redemption. If Jesus had come, taught, performed miracles, and then simply ascended into heaven, we would be left in our sin. Jesus came to die, to pay the penalty of our guilt. That's why he came. A crossless Christianity is not Christianity. That's why Paul could say, we preach Christ and him crucified. Now, of course, he's resurrected, but the cross is the gospel. The gospel deals with the problem that we are sinners. We have rebelled against God in, in thought, word, and deed. We stand condemned, worthy of God's just, just wrath, his infinite wrath, his eternal wrath. But God sent his son to the cross. And here Jesus is saying, the hour has come. Glorify your son. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. It's the payment of our sin. It's the conquest of Satan. But this is a struggle in the ancient world. 
There was no one, Greek or Roman or Jew, who would look at the cross and say, glory. It was anything but. It was a place of shame. It was a place of guilt. It was a place of condemnation. It was a place of terror. It was a place of suffering. But the word glory would never occur to someone in the ancient world. And yet Jesus looks to the cross and says, here it is, glorify your son. Show his glory because he came here voluntarily, intentionally, purposefully to come to that cross. And so we see the glory of his grace. We see the glory of his courage. We see the glory of his victory. We see the glory of his mercy in paying for our guilt, of bearing our shame, of bearing our wrath, and in this he is glorified. But he goes further and says that, that your son may also glorify you. For in the cross, the Father is glorified. So often when we think of a, a ver- when people think of a Bible verse, they run to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent him to the cross. He came to die. And so we see the Father's glory that, that Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, he died. God's glory, his love, his grace is seen at the cross. The son's glory in that he yielded. That he purposed to go to the cross. And so we see the son glorified in being the willing sacrifice So often when we think back to Abraham and the offering of Isaac, we think of, oh, what was in Abraham's heart? How could he offer his son like that? What about Isaac? He was old enough to carry a load of firewood. Now some of you think, well, that's two, three years old, but it was probably older. And he was a young teenager. He was a strapping young man. He could have held off his father. He could have looked him in the eye and said, no, 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 this isn't the plan. But he yielded, allowed himself to be tied to the altar, ready for sacrifice. Isaac, what's your story? Yes, Abraham is glorified in the offering of a son. But we also see a glory of an Isaac that would say, here I am. Go ahead, Father. My great joy is when you obey the Father. So we see the son is glorified. And in his glory, we see the Father glorified. But notice especially what Jesus' heart is. The glory of God. Again, before him, and we're going to see his, his angst, we're going to see his struggle in the, in, the Garden of, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is not an easy thing to do. 
But where is his prayer? That God might be glorified. That the glory of God, and what does he mean by that? It's not that it's when, 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 someone, when God is glorified, it's not that we add to his glory. When God is glorified, we display his glory. We show his glory. We reveal and, and allow others to see his character as a God of glory. In the Old Testament, the word glory is related to the word heavy. We, we see his majesty. We see his magnificence. We see his greatness. We see his glory. We glorify God when we, we show him in his, in his essence and in his character. And so what Jesus is saying is, is let my, my divine character be seen. Let your character, your nature be seen in, in all the fullness of your attributes of love and mercy and grace and might and wisdom. May we be on display. May you, Father, be on display. And that challenges us about how we pray. When we're looking to go into a difficult circumstance, what's our prayer? Lord, get me out of it, this one, like you did last time. Lord, protect me from this. Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, if I have to go through this, you know, give me the strength, give me, you know, deal with the pain, deal with the struggle. The prayer of Jesus is, show yourself glorious. May your glory be seen through what's before me. I've shared this a number of times, I know, with you, but when I think of this, I think again of James Montgomery Boyce, a great Bible expositor, pastor. He, when he was discovered to have cancer, he was out of the pulpit for many times, and in his final time back to the church, the 10th Presbyterian Church there, he, he stood in the pulpit and said, you know, said, he read the scripture, the call to worship, and then he had some words to this congregation in view of the fact of his serious cancer. I have to read it to you. He said, a number of you have asked what you can do, and it strikes to me that what you can do, you are doing. This is a good congregation. You do the right things. You're praying, certainly, and I've been assured of that by many people. I know of many meetings that have been going on. So he recognizes they've been praying. A relevant question, I guess, when you pray is, what do you pray for? Pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. I think it's far more profitable to pray for wisdom for the doctors. Doctors have a great deal of experience, of course, but they're not omniscient. They do make mistakes. Then also for the effectiveness of the treatment. Sometimes it does very well and sometimes not so well, and that's certainly a legitimate thing to pray for. But here is this. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ and it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, 
don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And that's where God is most glorified. You see what James Montgomery Boyce is saying. Pray for the doctors. Pray for the medicine. Pray for a miracle if you like. He didn't seem to be encouraging that too much. But really what he's saying is his heart was that God's glory would be seen in the days that were before him. God was glorified in his death and in what followed. That's a, he's an example, I think, to us, and, he's an, and as is Jesus, the greater example. Where's the focus of our prayer and our hope and our intention as we go into the hard times? Father, show your glory. That might affect the way we go into those times, wouldn't it? Lord, may my conduct, may my words, may my, my disposition show your glory. May as, 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 as we pass through whatever this, this time may be, these deep waters, Father, may my life glorify you. May my actions glorify you. May, may you be seen in this hour to which you brought me. And Jesus models for us how to pray. So he prays for God's glory. And then notice what he says here in verses 2 and 3 about how the Son is the one who gives, the, gives eternal life. <clears throat> as you have given the Son him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. He's speaking to the Father and he's saying, glorify the Son that you might be glorified because you've given him, the Son, authority over all flesh. So the Father is glorified by the actions of Christ, especially the cross, because the Father has delegated authority over all living, all flesh, especially humanity, but of all. He said, you have given me authority over humanity, especially over creation. What an amazing statement of the lordship of Christ over creation. Later on, Jesus will reaffirm that when he talks to his disciples after the resurrection. You remember the Great Commission, right? And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, first thing he says in that is, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Remember Philippians 2 says he's going to be raised above, that all will glorify him and bow before him. But here we see that God, the Father, gave the Son authority over all humanity, all flesh. Now, the next word is important. That. That he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. He has such authority for, for that, to accomplish salvation. That Jesus should give eternal life to as many, Father, as you have given him. That's the purpose of giving him that authority. Again, that's the Great Commission. I have all authority. Go and preach the gospel. Here he has all authority. He is voluntarily giving himself as an offering. And that authority is given with the purpose. The Savior is to give eternal life to everyone the Father gives to him. That gets a little convoluted. 
But here's the statement in John again, that he should give, that the son should give eternal life to as many as the father has given him. And so he's given this great authority. Why? So that he can give eternal life to the elect. Now that word isn't in there, but what he's saying is the father is going to give some to the son. And, and so that the son can give them eternal life. That's the idea of election. That God chooses some out of all humanity to have eternal life. And they are his gift to the son. We see this in John chapter 6 verse 37. All that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. In John chapter 6 verse 39. This is the will of the father who sent me. That of all he has given to me I should lose nothing but should raise it up on the last day. In John 10, verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So he's explaining, <clears throat> who are those who will come to faith? The one the Father gives to him. So the elect are those whom God has chosen to believe in the Son. They're, and and they're, they're God's gift to the Son. And because they're God's gift... They will come to faith, and because they are God's gift, they will stay in the faith. They will be kept. They're secure because they're given by the Father. Sometimes people give gifts and they take them back. Not the Father and his gift to the Son. And so that's a grounds for his security. My Father who has given to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my hand. What the Father gives, he gives. And what he's saying is, and no one can undo the gift. But back to our passage, what Jesus is saying is, I came, God's given me all authority, so that I might save the ones that he gives to me. And so this is, the, this is what, again, the doctrine we often call election. God chooses some to believe. And they are... They are the Father's gift to the Son. And the Son's gift to the Father is that he does save them. He lays down his life for the sheep. Sometimes we get troubled and we say, well, that's so-and-so's teaching, that's so-and-so's teaching. It's in here in the gospel of love, and it's in red letters. So you're not allowed to argue with red letters. Technically, you're not allowed to argue with the black letters either. But, 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 but you see my point. This is something Jesus was treasuring and embracing and teaching and, and giving reassurance to his disciples. You have believed in me because God gave you to me. And you know what? He'll keep you too. What God gives, he keeps so you're okay. See, they're, they're about ready to go into a big storm. And what he's telling them is, don't worry. God's made an ark for you. And if God puts you in an ark, you're going to float. And you're going to land. And you'll be just fine. And so, so God's going to be glorified because the, his, his people will be saved. And not one will be lost. Verse 3, 
And this is eternal life. Notice what he says before. He's given authority that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Well, that might lead to the question, well, what's eternal life? What does that mean? This is eternal life, that they may know you, again, he's speaking to the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, by the way, when he's explaining to the Father what eternal life is, don't worry, the Father knows. Remember, he's praying out loud so that so his disciples will hear. Parents do this. Help little Susie be a good girl in school today. Help little Tommy not take his sister's toys again. Uh, there's there's a there's a there's an there are a couple of audiences intended. And so Jesus explains to the Father what eternal life is, so the disciples will listen. But but that also says though this is sacred. He's not playing games. He's talking to the Father, and he says what eternal life is that you may know that they may know the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. We often think of eternal life as life that has no end. I think, was it Ronald Reagan said, the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. Um, But but, but just to say life without end, um, we need to clarify that. Because technically, every human being will live forever. Have you seen, you know, every, you know, so much theology is seen in memes today, right? Um, we all live forever. The issue is location, location, location. <laughs> and and we, everybody, once we have a, we, we, we're not eternal. Everlasting is a better idea. Eternal means no beginning, no end. But once we are conceived, we, we have begun what will not end. We have everlasting life. But the question is, where will we spend it? And in fact, the Bible even talks about everybody gets resurrected. Everybody gets a life, a body that's suited for everlasting life. Some will go to paradise. Some will go to punishment. But everybody lives forever. But when the, So when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's emphasizing, well, a matter of fact, even in the book of Revelation, it'll talk about the, the life as opposed to the second death. One is the punishment is so unlike the other, it's more like this is death and this is life. It doesn't mean you cease to exist, but that's not really living. Living is to be in the presence of God. And so he's saying here, what is eternal life? Eternal life is that they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. What is he, that word know? <clears throat> in the Greek, there's two different words, at least, for knowledge. One means to know facts. And the other is to know a person. This is the relational know. And so what he's saying, eternal life is to have a relationship with the only true God. So he's not giving some generic, eternal life is, is, is you know, any God you choose or any way. There's only one true God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is one God. There's only one true God and, and, and Jesus Christ So eternal life is to have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. 
Back in chapter 14, remember he said, no one comes to the Father but by me. There's only one eternal life that's truly life, if you will, and that's eternity in paradise with God. But the way that's accomplished is we have a relationship with him now. How is that? By good works? By being devout in whatever religion you choose? No. It's we have eternal life by knowing the Father, by knowing the Son. If you have Jesus Christ, you have the Father. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you don't have the Father. And so that's, that's why this is the hour of glory. The cross is what accomplishes this. The cross is what it allows Jesus to save those who were given to him and to keep them. And what does it mean to be saved and be kept? To have a relationship, to know the eternal God and to know Jesus Christ as son. Again, it's not just knowledge, facts about him. Over in James, we say, well, the demons know about God. They know there's only one God, which is great because he practically quotes the Jewish profession of faith. There is only one God. Right. Demons know the facts, but they don't have a relationship with him. And so this is what is, what is eternal life? It's to have a relationship, a communion, an intimacy with the one true God through Jesus Christ. By knowing the Son, we know the Father. And notice too, eternal life is, is not something we get later. Eternal life is the present, current possession of the Son. John 3.36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Pretty strong. You either have life or you have wrath. And when do you have that? You have it right now. The wrath is to come, but you have the everlasting life at the moment of belief in Jesus Christ. Eternal life does not begin with death. It begins with faith. That's that's so well said, you can tell I didn't come up with that one. That's a quote from Samuel Shoemaker. Well, in verses 4 to 5, he then describes that the Son has finished the work. That's the whole point. Mission accomplished. He says, I've glorified you on the earth. I've done it already. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. Kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he can say, I've run the race, I've finished the course. I'm done. Well, he's not actually done yet, is he? But he's done. And Jesus says it is, it is so in motion. Uh, he has not made it to the cross yet, but you know what? With his uh, perfect ears, perhaps he could hear the tromp of the Roman boots that are heading over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has already sold them out. Judas has already gathered the troops, and they're already mustering and marching for the great arrest of Jesus. Then will come the trials and then will come the cross. It's done. It's, it's set in motion. There's no turning back. He's finished his job. I've glorified you on earth, he says. I've finished the work. He's taught his disciples. He's called his disciples. He's taught his disciples. He and they have gone throughout Israel proclaiming the, the, the Messiah has come. 
After the resurrection, there'll be a little bit more instruction, but that will be different. Now he'll be teaching those who've seen the cross and the resurrection. Now it'll be where he's going to start again at Moses and say, let's, let's start over. Let's, let's walk you through Moses from Genesis all the way to the end. God's plan was the Messiah would come and die and rise again. So there he's kind of more uh, filling in the blanks and giving them perspective on what they supposedly already knew. But the Lord, it's so certain the Lord can speak of it as done. Even as he's praying, like I said, the soldiers are on their way. Uh, One commentator makes this statement. H.L. Gee tells, I don't know, I have a clue who H.L. Gee, I don't even know if it's G or Gee, G-E-E, tells of a war incident from Bristol. Attached to one of the air raid precaution stations during World War II, there was a boy messenger called Derek Belfall. He was sent with a message to another station on his bicycle. On his way back, a bomb mortally wounded him. When they found him, he was still conscious. His last whispered words were, Messenger Belfall reporting, I have delivered my message. What Jesus is saying is, it's done. It's done. The cross is so certain. There's no, there's no turning back. I've, I've done what I've, I've, I've called your disciples. I've lived a life. I came into this world and the cross is certain. Verse 15, verse 5, excuse me. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The work is soon to be finished, certain to be finished, and now it's time to come home. And now it's time to come home. The Lord prays with anticipation about his return to the pre-incarnate glory that he enjoyed. Now, see, we have to be clear. Jesus never stopped being God. God always has glory. But he set aside the manifestation of that glory. What do we sing at Christmas? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Still God. But he was cloaking the glory. He's longing to get back to glory. Israel's a wonderful place, but it's not heaven. And he's he's longing to get back to the courts of glory. He's longing for it. But notice, no human could pray a prayer like that. What's the prayer? Now glorify me together with yourself. Give me the glory I had with you before the world began. We can't pray that. We've never been to glory. We certainly wouldn't even exist before the world existed. He is the eternal son of God. How did this book begin, John 1? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's saying, I want to come home. (laughs) And I can do so because I've done the job. I'm finished. Again, no human could pray that, but but, but he's, he's doing exactly what was described in Philippians 2. Who, speaking of Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. But, but, but this is what he's saying is, I came from heaven 
to earth. Now I'm coming home. I, and I can do that because I've finished the task. Now, it's, are we clear? He's not saying I've earned heaven. I, I've been so good. I've done so much that now I earn a place. No, he's saying heaven's my home. I've been here for a short visit, just 30 years. I spent eternity in heaven. He's returning to where he belongs. And what's amazing is he invites us to join him. John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I can almost imagine that the holy, holy, holy God coming to earth would be kind of glad to get out of this mess and get away from these stinking sinners. But instead he's saying, I've come so that you can be with me. And in fact, it's okay with the Father because he gave you to me. And that's how God is glorified. God wants us in heaven. He demonstrates his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Jesus came and died because he wants us in heaven. What did he tell the repentant thief on the cross? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Glorious hope and promise. Would it surprise you that Mr. Spurgeon may have some thoughts on that? If you want to know what heaven is, you can spell it in five letters. And when you put the five letters together, they look like this. J-E-S-U-S. That is heaven. It is all the heaven the angels around the throne desire to know. They want nothing better than to, this, to see his face, to behold his glory, and to dwell in it world without end. It's Jesus' home. And heaven is glorious to us because he says, where I am, there you may be also. One pastor made this comment that's interesting. Do you realize in the Bible there is not one reference to believers going to heaven when they die? Instead, they go to be with Christ. Heaven's not a place to hang out. Heaven is a person to worship. It's Jesus. It's the place where Jesus is. I love the way he sang in our opening hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. The redeemed around the throne, casting down their golden crowns. What they're saying is, reward, honor, <laughs> you did it. To you be the glory. I'm just glad to be here. Kind of surprised. <clears throat> kind of surprised he's here. But, but we're glad to be here. This, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it'll be a place where it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so Jesus, when he's saying, speaking about his glory, that's what he's saying. He came to show God's glory. And he's longing to enjoy God's glory eternally. How about you? Is that your home? What did Jesus say? We can have a place in heaven with him through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you recognized you need a Savior? And have you recognized the gift Jesus Christ offers? Forgiveness and eternal life. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I would so urge you to consider his claims. Consider his warning. There's only two destinies. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, how we can admire his glory, how we need to share that glory, and how we long to be in glory. What's heaven? It's Jesus. What's eternal life? It's Jesus. To know the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son. The Christian life is Jesus. It's our relationship to him, loving him, serving him, worshiping him, being with him. As we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, we call it the Lord's table, not Terra Bible churches. You know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. If you have eternal life, then we invite you to worship him. Commune with him. It's called communion sometimes. Commune with him by remembering the body he gave for us, the blood that he shed for us. If you have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we'd ask you to let the elements pass. Because in partaking, you are declaring that Jesus Christ indeed is your Lord and Savior. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for allowing us to hear the words he spoke to his disciples, to you in the presence of his disciples. Oh, Father, fill us with a longing for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.